as I thought about what I would share uh, coming down here, um, I kind of was forced to ask not what I would like to teach about, but how I might best serve you. Uh, what do I have to say that might be most helpful to these men? It was my, my prayer to God that He would direct me to speak to you in the way that would help you the most. Uh, my assumption when I get down here is that most of you are Christians. It's a Christian men's retreat. I, I'm certain that not all of us are Christians, but most of us are. And my assumption is that most of us, because of that, are also clear on the gospel. I didn't feel like I needed to come down here and preach on the gospel um, in the sense that men wouldn't know it already, uh, that we're here. It's always good to hear those things again, but I didn't feel burdened in that way. Um, so I think the Lord would have me to speak to you about this man, Abraham. Um, I just finished preaching through the book of Genesis at my home church in Missouri. Don't sit, be seated. For seven years, on and off, okay, on and off. Um, for three years prior to that, I was really burdened to teach in Genesis in the, to the church because of some things I felt like the Lord was showing me about Abraham. And I was, I was eager enough to do it that I thought, I'll, that's fine, I'll teach the whole book, I'll do it. And um, so uh, I'm really eager to get onto other things in my preaching. But my feeling is, like I've, this could be helpful. And so I want to bring it. And so um, I've kind of reworked things and tried to figure out, I've got four messages to teach on the things that I think would be most helpful from his life that would most equip the saints here. And so that's my goal. That's my, what I'm aiming at, uh, to transform your understanding of Abraham uh, and of God's dealings with him. I want to mightily encourage you in the faith as we do that. I think this can. I want to increase your love for God and your understanding of God. And, and maybe most of all, to increase your understanding of God's ways with His people when you see the way God dealt with Abraham. I feel in my heart toward you the words of the Apostle Paul toward the Corinthians. We are workers with you for your joy. For your joy. So with that, um, why don't we pray and we'll dive into some of these things. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call you that yes. and know that you are fatherly to us. It's not some title you just demanded that we call you, but it's the cry of our heart when we think of you, that you're, you're our Father. Now, Lord, I ask that here today, tonight, and this over this weekend and our time together, that you would bless your word to our hearts. These eternal seeds would be planted deep, would produce much and on into eternity. We look to you. It's your book. When we're your people and you've ordained for this book to feed us. And so we ask you to come by your spirit and do this work that your word is meant to do in us. Amen. All right, so the message tonight will have uh, two main parts. It'll, it will be, uh, all of the messages I plan to be much longer than my messages are usually at my home church. But uh, it will be a little bit longer tonight than some of the other messages we have, uh, just because there's more I have to do. Um, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with some of these basic things about Abraham and Genesis and where we're going. So 
the first part of the message, we'll consider Abraham's place in redemptive history. We'll talk about that in a minute. For the second part, we'll consider the first uh, of our four main passages for this study, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So, concerning Abraham's place in redemptive history, let me first say what I mean by redemptive history. Hopefully, most of you know what I mean by that, but maybe some don't, especially some of the, the children. Um, we're all familiar with the term history, right? It's simply the accurate recounting of events in the past, um, together with an explanation of maybe how those events relate to their times, their peoples, uh, their environments. That's history. When we say American history, for instance, we're speaking about the history of the United States of America. How did it come to exist? How does it exist now? What's, tell me about the way of life in America. It's various cultures, it's peoples, it's economy, it's laws, it's leaders. If we ask about Chinese history, we're asking about the same thing about that country and people and region. And it's the same thing when we say redemptive history. We're asking about the past actions of God and His work of redemption. Tell me about the history of that, the redemptive history. We're seeking to understand how God's redemptive plan has been and is now being worked out in the world. In one sense, every Christian has a significant knowledge of redemptive history because we are intimately connected and familiar with Jesus Christ, the central figure in redemptive history, the one to whom all this redemptive history was leading up to and who himself will be the culmination of everything, the prime mover in all of redemptive history, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like We know him, so every Christian, in that sense, is very familiar with redemptive history. In another sense, uh, there has been much division in the church <laughs> throughout its history that has occurred because of not understanding redemptive history properly. In Acts, for example, there was this issue of whether Gentile believers should be circumcised and taught to keep the law of Moses in order to be considered obedient followers of God. We read about issues of whether Jew and Gentile will be united as one body in Christ, as His church, or whether they'll remain separate peoples with separate promises and separate destinies. Paul dispels that myth in Ephesians with crystal clarity. Today, there are those who teach Christians should keep certain Old Covenant laws simply because God gave them. When, was, when it was uh, that same God who put an end to that covenant and established a new covenant in its place. It's kind of an odd position. I take. I know some of these things are controversial, and they're especially controversial to some people. I'm not trying to be controversial. Um, I'm trying to illustrate the importance of understanding redemptive history. This was one of the things that the Apostle Paul specifically says he was praying for the churches he wrote to in Ephesians, that they would understand this matter of redemptive history. They would understand the mystery that is Jesus Christ which was hidden before but is now revealed, and that how God was taking, making Jew and Gentile into one new But He says, I'm praying that you guys would understand that. So it shouldn't be controversial for among Christians. So we're asking, what is Abraham's place in redemptive history? What is his position and his importance in, in redemptive history? Well, just think of this for a moment, briefly. Abraham is one of the most important people in all the Bible. I hope you believe that already, but... He's surpassed probably, certainly by the Lord Jesus Christ, but probably only also by David, Moses, maybe the apostles, Paul, Peter, and John. It's probably about it. He's mentioned many times in the Bible. 
There's only three human beings mentioned more times than, Mo than Abraham in the Bible. Jesus, David, and Moses. Next is Abraham. Um, he's the very first person in the Bible to be declared righteous by faith. That's pretty significant. He is said to be the student, both a student and a teacher of righteousness. He's said to be a prophet of God. He's the ancestor of Moses and David and Jesus. Yes, they're mentioned more times than he is, but he's their ancestor. <laughs> they're all descendants of Abraham. Three times we read that Abraham is a friend of God. He's said to be the father of all who believed in God after him. It was for the, think of this one, it was for the sake of promises that God made to Abraham that Israel was preserved despite all their sins and their idolatry. Can you imagine? I mean, God made him promises, and so later on, a thousand years later, this whole nation is preserved because God says, well, I can't go back on my word to them. He's pretty important. Heaven itself, this is incredible, is on one occasion described by the Lord Jesus Christ as the bosom of Abraham. What? Can you imagine what a high honor that is? He's said to be the older brother of all believers who receives them into heaven. He's pretty important. Whatever else we might say about him, he's important. Well, he's more central to our purpose today is not merely to talk about him being an important figure in the Bible, but again, what is his importance in the history of God's redemption to mankind? Well, in order to understand that, we need to think about a few things. If I'm going to talk about his place in history, we've got to talk about some things that happened before him and after him a little bit. So I want to do that. And um, I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but what I'm trying to do here is give you sort of a jet tour through the first 11 chapters of Genesis in as brief a time as I can do it, highlighting certain important things. There will be massive things that we don't cover and even I don't even bring up, and that is what it has to be for this setting. But here we are. The Bible opens up with this remarkable account. We've got to understand this. With this remarkable account of the beginning of this creation. God Himself, is of His own design and intention, created a world for His enjoyment and for ours. Every detail of His world was carefully planned, powerfully made, faithfully preserved, and lovingly enjoyed by Him. It was a delight to God and a joy to humanity. Mankind was given a special place in God's order for the creation. We were specifically made for this purpose. We were made as images of God, having capabilities and natures that in some way resemble God. And also we were given a blessing and a command to learn and subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it and to protect and preserve the garden of God. All things were given to us, but one thing alone was withheld. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we disobeyed God, He threatened our first parents with certain death. As we know, despite having witnessed God's good ways with him and having seen God provide for him a companion when he had felt so lonely, Adam disregarded that lesson that God would provide for him and instead willfully transgressed against God, eating from the only tree of which he was forbidden to eat. The result was dreadful consequences to all of God's world. And quite literally, it undid the design of God's creation. You need to understand that. 
it undid the whole design of God's entire creation. Because God's relationship with mankind was the center point or the linchpin of that creation. It was very good after man was made in God's image, in relationship with God. God was, God's original plan for the world was what? Well, just what it ends up being one day in Revelation. God was dwelling with men. The dwelling place of God is with men. And when man becomes a sinner and under the wrath of God and the threat of death, the whole design is ruined. And this is what happened. Man has put himself under the sentence of death by seeking to deny God his rightful place as Lord of the earth. And so begins then man's rapid descent into sin, rebellion, violence, all manner of wickedness. Three times in Genesis, between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, all before Abraham, we read about curses coming, upon, uh, coming from God toward the earth and toward man. To begin with, the earth is cursed, Genesis chapter 3. That's the first time. Because of Adam's sin in the garden. Here was this great offense to God, this tremendously arrogant way of living before God, before the great King, the Creator, the supremely great being. That's what His name means as Genesis 1 uses that word for God, Elohim, means the, the, great, the supremely great being. And here was Adam sinning against Him in this way. He defied God's right to rule over Him and refused to obey the only prohibition God had given Him. He denied God even the easiest of duties, and for this there was tremendous consequence. There's a lesson in that too, isn't there? He denied God even the smallest of duties, and there was tremendous consequences. That's not just a fact of history. There's a lesson there. Mankind was given the blessings of dwelling, had been given the blessings of dwelling in God's presence, but it's taken away. And as a result of their sin, they are, Adam and Eve, it actually says, are driven out. It's not just asked to leave. They didn't walk out. God had to, says, had to drive them out. What a scene that must have been. Driven out of the garden. Mankind was given the blessing of marital bliss, but that's exchanged for a far lesser degree of joyfulness in marriage. One that must work through continual strife and misunderstanding, personal failure, pain, even in the bearing of children. It just is hard. Man was given dominion of the world and, a great, and the great blessings of God and the rich resources of Eden and even the ongoing possibility of eternal life. But that's lost too. Replaced with a struggling existence and a world that is subjected to futility and requires a sort of life-draining labor in order to keep living. The ground is now so cursed um, also in that the blessings of Eden will no longer be brought to the earth as originally intended. Instead, it's doomed to being worked by a mankind that is not like God, but rather is self-centered and sinful, limited in their ability to accumulate, accumulate knowledge, without the high blessings God intended to provide, and now the earth itself is often even used by God to bring judgment and warnings to men. In that context, I mean, think about it. We're supposed to have dominion over this thing, and natural disasters kill millions of, or thousands and thousands of us every year. I thought we were supposed to have dominion. Well, this is part of the curse. Now, in that context of the terrible consequences for man's sin, God speaks a word of condemnation to the serpent who had occasion to man's sin. And God told him, within earshot of the man and woman, that a descendant of the woman would destroy the devil and his efforts to undo the order and the blessing that God had made. God wasn't going to give up on this order. He was going to restore it. 
but he wasn't going to do it yet. He says, and who's, the, who's going to do it? Well, God's going to do it, but he's going to do it through this descendant of a woman. And we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is what's said here. And so the man and woman, woman begin to look for a child to do that. And God later blessed Adam and Eve with a family. Among their children were two notable sons, but both of these sons, the, na- the, the son Cain, she actually names, it, the word means I've gotten him. Well, what has she gotten, she thinks? She thinks she got, maybe, this child who's going to un- fix everything. Well, Cain's a mur- he murders his brother. And Abel, his name means of no account, literally. I don't know if most people don't know that. His name, it doesn't mean Abel, like we think of somebody's able to do something. It's just the opposite. He can't do anything. We don't expect anything from this one. Well, he was the righteous one. Well, he was killed. So she lost two sons. More than that, Cain leaves and he founds a city in exile from God. God told him, go out and wander the earth. And he says, well, I'll go out there, but I'm going to build a city. With who? His brothers and sisters. Imagine that for Adam and Eve. They see they don't not only lose two sons, one to murder and one to sin, but then one takes with them a bunch of their other descendants, and they're all gone, a lot of them. It's a sad thing. They were lost to open hostility and willingly being alienated from God. How many parents have seen their children do that? They knew it in mass. Lots of them went. Seth is born. And Eve, and thought by Eve, maybe this would be God's replacement for righteous Abel, right? But he shrinks under the weight of these hopes. The next child he na- he he has, he names a child, and and it's similar. It means weakness. It's like we're giving up. It's not going to happen. But the Bible doesn't end there. It actually, that is in that account. There it says, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. So some some people have gotten it. Seth seems to be one of them. He says, well. You're going to name me, you know, this idea that we're going to, I'm a replacement and I'm going to somehow be something. Return us back to God. I'm, I can't do it. And my son's not going to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to name him such that nobody thinks he's ever going to do it. But let's start asking God, right? Something like this. Well, this goes on. Some begin looking to God for this impossible gift and start calling upon the name of the Lord. But they're the rare exception. Eventually, one man named Lamech, names his son Noah. In that name, he's, he's hoping that this child would be the one to deliver the people and to bring them rest from the weariness of life. Well, he must have been raised well and have taught some things of God because he's said to have walked with God, to have been a righteous man, and to have stood apart in his generation. So Noah was really something. The earth itself, cursed as it is, was still a wonderfully good place, but man had been soiling it in his time and does great violence to each other and ruins not just themselves, but the whole design of God's world. They fill it with violence, God says. So God judges man on the earth, and the world itself is washed clean of their continual and overwhelming violence and perversion in the great flood. That's all from the first curse. But this next curse is that flood. We read in Genesis 8.21, it calls, and God says, I'll never again curse the earth. And he's, and he's talking about this flood. That is, it was a terrible fate endured by all the world because of the sinfulness of man. The curse of death and the curse of destruction came upon the creation of God due to this ongoing, increasing, high-handed sinfulness of mankind. Only Noah and those with him are saved because Noah stood out from the rest of the world and found favor and grace with God. 
Well, we might think, well, no, that was great. Look at Noah. And we t- typically stop the story of Noah there, at least in our minds. We think, well, Noah was the righteous one who, you know, God saved and all that. Well, keep reading. After the flood, even righteous Noah, as righteous as he was, is found in sin and shame. This righteous man, Noah, is found passed out drunk. Right? He be, after the, he became a, a man who had a vineyard, a worker of the vineyard, he gets his wine and passes out drunk. Not just this, he's, think of this now, he's passed out naked, lying uncovered in his tent. Now, I don't care to, and I hope you don't, don't care to imagine the terrible lack of character that would find you in a situation like that. But that's Noah. That's where he ended up. We could sympathize with him. I mean, he'd seen a lot of destruction and things in his day. We could, from one sinner to another, I could say, well, I understand how he got to that place. But that's where he was. He's not going to be the one to deliver us. He's just not. Um, one of his sons, Ham, is aware of, of his, his father, what's going on, and he does something. We're not told what exactly. He does something to dishonor his father and to highlight his dad's failure and his dad's humiliation. Here's a man who went and made a mockery of his father when his father was at his lowest point, his most, the most disgraceful time in his life. He even invites his brothers to come laugh and mock and join in, disgracing their father. But they refuse and cover their father's shame. And now here comes the third curse. When Noah wakes up, he knows what Ham has done. And in response, he utters a curse upon Ham's descendants. This means then that at the outset of this new start after the flood, it's supposed to be this new start, right at the beginning, within the first and second generations, we've failed miserably. And what was supposed to be this new start in a sin-cleansed world, one-third of the population, all the descendants of Canaan, or of Ham, they're going to be under a further curse of subjection and have to serve, rather than exercise dominion under a clear sky, they're going to be slaves in a further sense. We see next that however bad the situation may have seemed at the time, as, God, as they came off the, the boat, God said, go fill the earth. And we read in Genesis 10, they filled the earth. But we read about some pretty unsavory characters in that chapter too, as they were spreading abroad. And you think, okay, well, at least they filled the earth. That was good. Well, don't get ahead of yourself. We read in chapter 11 why they filled the earth, right? There was the, the highest form of rebellion they'd done yet. They, they said, we're not going to go fill the earth. We're going to build a city and a name for ourselves, a tower up into the sky. God floods the earth again. He's not going to get us. We're going to be on top of the tower. And more than that, we're going to build it up, up so high up into the heavens where God's going to have to deal with us when, the way we say. This was the idea. We're going, to have, we're going to access the power of heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to live where we want to live. And we're going to be safe from God's judgment. That's pretty foolish. So as they're building their tower high up into the sky, the, the, and the height of irony, the Bible says, and God looked down and came down to see what they were doing. <laughs> right? He had to go way down to look and figure out what they were up to. They thought they were being real mighty. Well, it didn't last long. And God undid all of that by confusing the languages and frustrating their designs. Well, so what are we left with? Well, in Genesis, when, in Genesis when, God, when Noah had, had declared that curse upon Ham, he all turned right around and declared a blessing upon Shem. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. 
And then his other son, Japheth, he said, now there's a blessing for him too, but it's going to be in connection with Shem. He's going to have to make his tents with Shem. And if he stays close to Shem, he'll get a blessing. So you think, well, if God said that there's going to be a man to make things right, where's it going to come from? Well, some descendant of Shem. It's going to have to be. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And then others get their benefit from being connected to Shem. And so that's exactly what happens in Genesis 11. At the end of that, Moses tech sets out and says, now these are the generations of Shem. And it begins to go down Shem's line. Now what's important to understand something. He's not saying Shem's a godly man right now. He's just saying sometime down the road, something good's going to happen down there. Earlier in Genesis, when we go through, look at Genesis chapter 5, um, you can turn there if you want, or I'm just going to tell you something about that. It's a genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And it goes through and it says this person was so old when they you know, had this son and they lived this many years afterwards. And you go through all these men. And some of those men, it says, now this one walked with God. Right? And it, and it, and it highlights some of them who had something notable or godly to say about them. Because they were the exceptions. It doesn't want you to lose hope. Everybody's dying under the curse of God. But some men were walking with God. So one man didn't even die. This man Lamech was hoping in God and named his son Noah. There's a lot of good things that happened. But in this genealogy, Genesis 11, it just says this guy fathered this one, fathered this one, fathered this one. Nobody stands out. There's nothing great to say. right? They were all there gathered there at the Tower of Babel. And then they had kids and they just kind of kept living the same life. And we get down to this man, Terah, who had three sons. And one of them was Abram. Was Abram. And uh, that's where we get and that's where we come to now. So here we are. Um, what do I want to say about this family? This man, Terah. If we learn anything, of the, and I don't expect you to know this necessarily, but if we were to learn anything about the culture and the place that they were living in, things that the Jews of the time knew because they knew what kind of people lived in what places, we would know that Terah and his sons were fully involved in the worship of false gods and knew almost nothing of the true and the living God. In fact, Joshua 24.2 says it this way. Some of you may not be familiar with this text. Joshua 24.2, this is recording God speaking to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So there he was. He's an idolater. Abram's an idolater. He's not, there's not this, get out of your head this idea that there's this godly lineage that went all the way down through history. Like, Abram's the only guy God starts to use here, and this guy was an idolater. And comes from a line of idolaters. That's where we are idolatry. All is lost. Blessing after blessing has been given by God. The continual pattern is that man loses the blessings in his sinfulness. We're on this continual downward spiral. At least, think about this, before the flood, Noah's father was naming his children in light of this hope he had that God would, would restore the world. But by the time we get to Abram and his story, we find that this family line from which we're hoping to see God's blessing come is totally devoid of anyone looking to God. In fact, they're all out serving false gods. It's amazing. Right through the genealogy, nothing stands out. No great figures, just the progression of time. But then there's this radical shift that happens in Genesis chapter 12. 
All we've been reading about is all these curses and the failure of men and blessings that were given that are now lost. And we come to Genesis chapter 12. So turn with me there, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Let this sink in. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's starting out with something totally different now. Now we're blessing. We had three curses in the Bible so far. And we got three times God says, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless. What a change. Noah was a righteous man and it didn't work out. Abraham's a pagan. Abram's a pagan. And God says, I'm going to bless. I'm going to bless. And I'm going to bless the world through you. What a thing. This is radically different. Well, it's a, because of that, when we're thinking about Abraham's place in redemptive history, you can think of it this way. It's the, upon the life of Abraham, God's dealings with humanity move like, like Abraham's a, a hinge. And we've got, before Abraham, we've got a shut door and a closed way. And, and then Abraham comes and God deals with Abraham and all of a sudden now, we've got an open door and open access. We've got a blessing. comes again. He's, he's important. He's important. Um, and a promise that one day all the, all the families of the earth will get in on this blessing. It's amazing. All right. What else? It changed, with Abraham, we changed from repeatedly cursing what was once blessed to a, and regularly frustrating the evil schemes of man. Now God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to patiently lovingly and with a committed uh, and with full commitment bring every blessing I have first to this man and then to the world through him. It's a radical change. He's the beginning of a newly started, because it starts right here, but long planned program for the people of the world to relate again to God. Amen. And what's more, the way God enters into Abram's life to bring this blessing about is one of the most, I think, powerful and deeply encouraging stories I've encountered as a believer. And that's what I hope over these four messages, and it'll take four to get it all out there and to lay out for us. Historically, Abraham is the beginning of a people called out of darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. He was a pagan idolater who forsook all of that, believing in a living God who appeared to him in the midst of his idolatry and called him out of it. So not only is he remarkably important as a person, is he paradigm shifting as a person in the history of God's dealings with men, but he's also a fellow traveler, one who like us has been pining away in darkness and unbelief, but who then in mercy was laid hold of by God and brought into light. Given blessing. What a thing. Made into even an everlasting friend of God. Throughout the entire, think of this. I don't know how familiar you are with the stories of Abraham. I've spent all this time in Genesis, so they're always right on the top of my head, right? But when, throughout the entirety of his life, we find God speaking blessings, 
swearing to him to give him blessings, taking oaths about blessing, assuring Abraham about the blessings, making covenants with him about the blessings, working in Abraham and in the world around him to prepare for the blessing, and even giving Abraham blessing directly. Things could hardly be different because of what God has decided to do now in this man's life. And so this calling of Abraham, we want to use this name Abram right now because his name hasn't been changed yet. Um, let's go then to these three verses and consider them. Part, the next and the last chunk of the message here. Um, let's go to, I believe it says right there. So Genesis chapter 12. Let's back up into chapter 11. Look at verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. What became of Terah? Well, he fathered Abraham or Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Let me stop there for a moment. Culturally, Abram was in Ur of the Chaldeans and living as a pagan. This was a dark place with dark practices. We know that Abram was living in this darkness and worshiping and serving false gods along with his family because of the kind of things that were happening here, and we'll see some other things about the text here in a minute, but also because Joshua tells us he was serving false gods. We know he was. The Bible doesn't go much further into it than that, and I don't think it's really necessary except just to say that you ought to be thinking, when you think about his idolatry, you ought to be thinking about every terrible religious practice available to man. Because what we know from archaeology, about, you know, archaeologists go into these areas and they find out all these things that the Bible's not ashamed to tell us, but just doesn't tell us at this instance. It was bad. It was really bad. In fact, uh, their wives, Sarai and Milka, both of them are... All scholars tell you that they're named after the the moon god that they worshipped in that place. Just like in Israel, right? So many of the names have El at the end of them and those kind of things. They're all named after God in some way, a lot of them. Um, so these other pagans did the same thing with their gods. And Ab Abram and Nahor, they married women who had names after... They were, they were pagans too. They were caught up in this, serving false gods. Um... This is his background. This is where he's at. Uh, there's some debate people have. I won't get into it, but about uh, when Abram was called in the New Testament, it says God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, and and, and uh, in Hebrews also tells us that back there in Ur, God called him and he believed God and left. Here in Genesis, it says Terah took Abram and his, his son and Lot and these others and left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran. And then after Terah dies in Haran, then God, God tells him, hey, here's this call. And so what do we do with this? I just want to not get into a debate about it, but just 
give you what my present understanding is about that. We ought to envision, I think, a scenario in which Abram receives his call from God while in Ur of the Chaldeans and travels with his, convinces his dad to go. Um, but they, you know, they're only willing to go as far as Haran. Now, it's helpful to know, according to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, Abram and his family had always hailed from the area of Haran up north. And then they had, for some reason, Terah and his sons had ended up way down in Ur of the Chaldeans. Both Haran and Ur of the Chaldeans were like the most, some of the largest cities in the ancient world. Both of them worshipped the same false god and were hubs for those that worship. And so for some reason they were down in Ur of the Chaldeans worshipping the false gods. God comes to Abraham and says, you got to get out from all that and go to this other place and I'll do these things for you. Abram convinces them to go, but the family just wants to go as far as Haran, and they stay there. And eventually his dad dies. And what happens then? I don't know why, why he decides to leave then, but he does. Either God calls to him a second time, or he's remembering this call, and he says, you know, I need to go. I need to go. There's, God offered me something. Now think of that. He's, this, he's serving these false gods, and all of a sudden the living God shows up. The real God shows up. He doesn't have to pretend anymore. God showed up and spoke to him in a way that he knew it was a living, the, the, the living God showed up and said, go. Now, what would it take for you to abandon everything in your whole life and just go? Right? Well, this is what happened. And he left. It's amazing. And he left a place where his, he had family there that could protect him. They had, we learned later in Genesis, they were pretty wealthy as a family out there in Haran. Things were good. He left all that to become a traveler in the ancient world, if you weren't from a city, you won't get to buy property. You don't get to come in the. You don't get to use the wells. You just you're out there in the middle of nowhere. You could stay outside the towns and the places where we don't want to settle. But we're not. You're not welcome to live inside the town or to do business with us until we know you. He leaves to go to live like that, and he lives the rest of his life that way. Basically, it's incredible. So he was convinced to go. It's amazing that he believed God at all in this way. The only explanation is two things. The promise was so great. The potential was so high. I thought, man, what could... He's, this God's telling me he's going to do what? And the other thing was that he was so convinced it really was God that spoke to him. And so he'd go. Well, let's look at this call. What I want us to focus on is something that... Uh, it's there in the text. You can see it. But it might be difficult for you to see it because of our translations. And don't look at me sideways when you say that because that's the time when preachers tell you things that there's their pet theory and it's not really there. But that's not what I mean. You'll see it. It's just you won't see it as clearly as I want you to see it. Okay. So let's look at this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Is that, a, is that an ask or a command? It's a command. There's one command. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be... And then here's the other command. So that you will be a blessing. Now we can read that and we... The so that can be interpreted a couple of different ways. It could be God saying, I'm going to do this and you're just going to be really blessed. You'll just be a blessing or something like that. I don't ever... Some, some woman might say it, right? Oh, you're a blessing. You know, and they don't, they don't really mean anything like it by it. 
But here it is, the purpose. It's another imperative. It's actually another command. I'm going to do these things for you so that you, you do this. So I'll make of, a great, of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great. And my expectation is so that I'm doing these things so that you will be a blessing. It's not for you. It's to bless others. Right? So this is where it is. This is, this is the idea. There's two imperatives, two commands in the call. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then so that you are a blessing, you'll be a blessing. So let's look at those in turn. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This call, I think, is, is, is a, a big ask on two levels. First of all, physically. It involves a geographical move away from the country that he lives in all the way across the Fertile Crescent. And um, involves a further move away from extended family, from his kindred. It involves severing his ties with his father's house and stepping out onto his own apart from the patriarchal blessings and umbrella that he would have had from his father. Spiritually, it involves a conversion from all the false gods he'd been serving. He's got to go, he's got one God now. Maybe he had one main God before, but he had all kinds of little family idols and this and that. That's how, the, that's how paganism works, right? Well, he can't do that anymore. He's got to go follow this one God. And it's even worse because as Christians, we don't tend to think of uh, and modern people, because we live in an atheistic society, we never tend to think of um, there being a God in one country and then another God in another country, yeah. right? So he's off in a, in a country serving one God, and some God who's not the one they serve there shows up and says, hey, follow me to this other place, and I'm going to make you a great nation. It's kind of like, I hope that's his land. I hope this is going to work out. You know, he doesn't know. He's totally a pagan. It's not like when God called him and told him this, he suddenly got all this knowledge about the real God and what his character was like and you know what his plans were for the history. He didn't know any of that. He's just in total darkness, but now he's got some light and he knows this is real and he's following that. What a thing. Well, so that you'll be a blessing. So that you'll be a blessing. Um, it's an imperative. It's a command. It gives him a purpose and a direction. Now, I want you to think of this. God's call was that Abraham would live in such a way as to be a blessing to others by his kindness, by, by being a just man, by providing for those who had needs, and by spiritual teaching as he learned more and more about God. That's what it means to be a blessing. Right? Um, this was what he was commanded to do. And let's look at verse 2. Again, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, which means something like this. You know, Abraham, I'm going to give you, you go out for, and risk everything and all the protection and security you have, and security you have, and go out into this land. And I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great, make you a, a great nation. And, and I want you to bless others. Don't defend yourself. Don't, don't hoard it. Don't get involved in controversies with other people. You just seek to bless everybody. Just be free with what I'm giving you. And if you do that, the, the concern would be, well, who's going to protect me? 
God says, well, those who bless you, I will bless. And the one that curses you, and literally the one who thinks, who regards you lightly, I will curse that one, it says. So in other words, not nobody who, who treats you wrong, none of them will escape. I will, treat, I will curse even that one. So he's given, it's not that Abram wants anybody to be cursed. The whole point is to bring blessing. But Abram needed God's assurances that God was going to protect him. The one who blesses you, I'll bless. And the one who curses you, I'll curse. And what else? And he says, and if you'll do that, I've given you two commands. You get out of this place and you go, follow me. And I'll bless you. And if you seek to be a blessing with that blessing, I'll protect you. And in the end, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's going to go, it's going to, everybody's going to get in on it. Okay. Um, this is what we have, these promises. If he follows the command to be a blessing, these things will happen. So at the beginning, um, this call from God is essentially a conditional promise. If you, you go do, I'm commanding you to do these two things. And if you'll do those things, I'll be with you and look what the end result will be. Um, we don't typically think of Abraham and associate him with conditional promises. The New Testament says, you know, our blessings in Christ were promised to Abraham so that there were no conditions, so that they could be secure and certain. They didn't depend on performance and law. And it sounds like we're saying a little bit something different right now. And all I could ask you is to bear with me, we'll get there. I don't intend to set myself up against Paul. Um, but this is how, I mean, it's just the plain meaning of the text, right? I mean, we're not, it's just there. And we've got to, we'll learn more as we go through. I can't... Brethren, if Abraham's going to leave everything and follow God, God says he'll bless him. If he'll bless others with what God is doing for him, then this eventually results in blessing for all the families of the earth. I cannot stress to you how important it is if we're going to learn all that we can learn from Abram, how much we need to understand that that was a conditional situation. If he did this, then God would do these things. Nothing we have seen so far in Genesis would give us any hope of any man ever doing this, would it? I mean, I mean, God said, if you'll do these things, but what have we learned about men? It's like you read this and as high as your hopes get, you think, well, that's going to fail. I mean, that's never going to work. That seems like, a, like God's hamstringing himself here to work with a pagan and say, if you'll follow me and be super godly, it'll work. It's like, well, forget it. But Abraham didn't. Abram didn't. This is the beginning of God's dealing with this man. Um, last little bit here. Let's keep reading. Abraham goes. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And that's staggering too. Like, what is he doing? Going with him. Well, it's probably the most exciting thing that ever happened in his life. His uncle Abram is telling him, Hey, God appeared to me and made me these promises. And so he says, I'm, let me get in on it. I'm going to go too. Everybody's going to be blessed. Bless me too, right? Seems to be what his character was like later on. Gimme, gimme, gimme. 
But Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. He overcomes the inertia of old age and of all that he had known, all that he had previously believed and trusted in. Now he's going to trust in God's provision, God's character, God's promise. He's cast himself on God. And he arrives at this place of Canaan, which is also a pagan land. Different gods, but the same, same stuff, right? And it says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, listen to this, to the place, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then it tells you what he did. So what, he arrives at, at Canaan, and it says he goes through the land, and he arrives at some place. And the way it describes it is the place, at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And before it moves on and tell you what happened, it says, now you understand it was the Canaanites that were predominant in the land at this time. What should you think about this place? Why does he describe it this way? Well, what happened? What did the pagans do under every high tree? They made an altar to their gods, and there they served their false gods. So in all likelihood, Abram comes to a place. He comes to Canaan, and he finds a place where gods are worshipped, and he wonders, maybe this is where this god is worshipped. And he goes up there, and he sees all their idolatry and their paganism, and it looks a lot like things did back home. Different statues, but the same kind of thing. And what does he do? It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So what did he do? He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Why did he? He had to build a new altar. He looked at the tree, all the stuff that was there and said, Well, this didn't belong to this God. I'm going to build me another altar. And he built an altar to the true God. It's amazing. He, does, he goes to this place, to the, this, this religious place, and you go through the Old Testament. Every time you see these, these places, up on a hill, under a tree, this is what's going on all the way through the Old Testament. He gets to the place, and it says, and the Canaanites were there. And this is the kind of thing that was going on in these places. And he gets there, and God meets him. What a condescension of God to meet him there. God could have said, he should know better than to meet me someplace like that. Right? God is not going to be like that. I'm not going to do that. That's impure. Well, God met him in his idolatry and his paganism. Why wouldn't he meet him here? And he did. So here he is. So the Lord appeared to him and said, To your offspring I'm going to give this land. So this is the place. It's this land of Canaan. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built another altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. All right. So this is what he's doing. So we're, not, we're going to leave off from the text now and just say a few other things here as we close. But I read those other verses to say this. Um, when Abram gets to, to Canaan, he's already about the business of, he knows he's supposed to be serving this God. He knows God's got expectations. And he goes, he starts building altars to him. And he's on mission kind of already. Now, he doesn't do real well for very long. But it starts good, right? Zeal is that way, right? Zeal of new converts is kind of that way. It goes real good for in a, in a good in a one direction for a little bit, and then you learn some things, and then it goes real good in another direction for a little bit, and then you learn some things. And this is the way God deals with Abraham. I want to say this by way of application. Now we've said some spiritual truths that 
are good for us to hear. But I want to make this point. Faith in God is never less than hazarding, hazarding ourselves on God. Abram left everything. He couldn't believe God and not leave everything behind. Right? Now, faith might not have to be that way, but that's the conditions Jesus gives us. Right? You're going to have to die to self if you're going to have life. So it's just the way it is. God has set it up the way He wanted it to be is that faith in Him is never anything less than hazarding yourself on Him. He's going to have to come through. You're going to have to look at something He said and say, well, I'm going to trust that and forsake all this other stuff. That's what faith is. Now, beloved, think of this. If Abram, ignorant pagan Abram, can believe God and leave all that he had and forsake all that he knew and the comfortable life he had, not once but twice because he did it in Ur and the family settled for a while in Haran and then he did it again. He did it twice, even at the outset of his journey before God ever said anything else to him again. Then surely we, upon whom the end of the ages has come, to whom the promised plan has been revealed. He didn't know it. We know it. Before whom Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified and risen. We who have known the trustworthiness and the goodness of God in ways that Abram had to learn. He didn't know that yet. We've known it already. We have these great stories to encourage us. We have a great cloud of witnesses about concerning the character and the goodness of God. Surely we can follow God in these matters that He's commanded us, can't we? Hey, Abram can do it. Can't we? We've tasted God's forgiveness. We've taken comfort from His love. We've participated in the blessings and the influence of the Holy Spirit. We've felt the affection and sympathy of God toward His people. We've felt the love of His people. Surely we can muster the courage and the faith to overcome nagging sins and remnants of unbelief in our own hearts so that we too may be among those whose faith does not weaken or shrink back at the promises, right? Choosing rather to believe God through hardship, through doubts, through personal sins, whatever else may come. Beloved, even at this early stage, Abram is an example to us of simple faith, just believing God. He didn't need to know much in order to leave everything and follow God. He knew God was real and that this offer of blessing was real. He likely didn't even know what was meant by the blessing yet. He didn't, I mean, he's a pagan. What have, what, if you talk to a lost person and say, God will bless you, what do they have in mind? Not, not Christ, not usually, right? He's just going. I don't know what I'm going to get, but I know it's a real God who's going to give it to me. I know that. I'm going. Well, we too are called of God to serve Him in a land that's not our own, Right? We're sojourners. While here we have to, just like Abram, stand apart as a peculiar and distinct people. Our manners, our character, our habit of always being aware of God, the purity and the love we dis display to the world, all have to be there for God. He's called us to bless the world, right? God hasn't called us to anything less than He expected of Abram. There's a higher calling on us to share with the world the light of the gospel. Think of it, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've received. What? That's a pretty high call. We've received the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us then, right, during these days where we're together to seek to understand His dealings with Abraham and what He does. 
I, again, I think there's real blessing for us here. And that's my prayer and hope for you. So that's all I have tonight. Um,